Thank you, Dave, for filling in. That was wonderful. Well, happy Mother's Day, mothers. Yeah, let's give it up for our mothers. How do you put up with us? I was a perfect child, but that's what my mother told me this morning. Of course, that's what mothers always say. My dad told me otherwise, but my mother... <laughs> I have great parents. I'm not going to talk about them anymore. I'm going to start crying. Well, we had a, a wonderful breakfast this morning. Did everybody get enough to eat? Wherever there is food, the Baptists will be. <laughs> when, I, when I was, I'm still a student at Southern, but I do... I'm finishing my Master's in, of Divinity at Away, so I'm doing online learning. But when I lived there for a year, we would, we would have these conferences. And every time we had a conference or every time we had a meeting or every time we had a small group, if we got together for prayer, somebody brought munchkins. But there was always food. Baptist, we got to get some healthier options. We need to bring some... Somebody's clapping for that. <laughs> Chick-fil-A was always sponsoring, so. We had a good Sunday last week. If you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you and we want to encourage you to uh, continue to visit with us in the future. We're going through as a church our Connect series, which is our new members class. This is, a, this is the inaugural session, so it's going to be slightly longer, and it includes everyone even long-time members, because we want to make it very clear the direction of our church. And so with that said, we've looked at our core beliefs, our core values. We've looked at our mission and our vision and our direction. And now we're looking specifically at our core beliefs. Last week, we simply spent a sermon on discussing why the knowledge of God is so important for us. That was two pages. Two pages of that sermon. Usually the sermons are five pages. Some of you are like, I know. But last week was two. And the Spirit led me to stop on those two pages. I want to conclude that sermon then today by looking at the four points in total. So if you would look with me this morning at these points I pray that you'll be encouraged by the study of God. There is no greater task and no more rewarding task than to study and know more about God. I'm not so sure, though, that everyone understands that. that the day and age that we live in is a day and age where we and ourselves are the measure of all things. It is our happiness that we're after. Do what makes you happy. Believe in yourself. And so the devil is pleased with that type of thinking because it gets us away from the very thing that God made us for, which was to love him 
and enjoy Him forever. That's why we have been made. And so any activity, any task that we do is to be done to the glory of God, and that is for our benefit. In other words, it is not that God has a serious, arrogant complex. Although if anyone could have one, it could be him, and he would be completely justified in doing so. It is that God is the type of being that is so glorious, so amazing, that it is to your benefit as a human being created in his image to worship him and enjoy him forever. Just think about that for a moment. God is the type of being that when he makes other beings in his image, in order to give him the greatest gift he could possibly give them, the greatest gift must be that you and I fellowship with him. Only God could do that. God is most glorious. God is eternally glorious. I want to define God this morning. In the early 90s, a popular camera advertisement featuring Andre Agassi came out and had the tagline, image is everything. I would agree with Mr. Agassi. But unfortunately, both Mr. Agassi and the nice people at Canon, for them, the image that they were speaking of was the image of themselves or the image of ourselves and not the image of God. There can be no worse error than to make ourselves the measure of our own image. If there is any dignity left in a man after being robbed of the divine image, it is simply that he still has that mark even though he has neglected it for himself. Seeing our image as being comprised of only our own center of consciousness is nothing short of psychological and spiritual suicide. This error must be avoided within the church. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Man, it's not just the man, the physical man, the male, the the, the, androg- the, the anatomy of manhood that makes you created in the image of God. It is both male and female, and that image is perfected most beautifully when the two become one. We're going to explain that a little bit more in just a moment. But I want you to realize this, that of all the creations of God... The thing that separates us from every other thing, every other created thing, it's not DNA, right? Every other living organism has DNA. You share DNA just like a tree has DNA. 
monkeys have DNA. In fact, one of the, one of the chief arguments of evolutionists is that monkeys have 98% or something like that of the human DNA. And that's completely fine, Christian. Don't, don't challenge that, Christian. It, it's fine if you hear that monkeys have emotions or apes have emotions and that apes can reason and that apes can use tools. All of those things are true. They're not, it's not that those are the only thing that makes us human, that we have the ability to reason or that we have emotions or that we use tools or that we love or that we can contemplate death. All of that the philosophers are impressed with. That's not what the Bible tells us, though, is the distinguishing mark between man and all other creatures. The distinguishing mark between man and all other creatures is this. We were made in his image for his glory, for your good. Next time someone says to you at the zoo, I remember I was standing at the zoo one day and someone said to me, look at those apes, they do look and act a lot like humans. I could see how someone could believe in evolution. I want you to say to them, if you ever hear something like that again, just say, yeah, but they're not made in his image. What is it? Yeah, but they're not. They're like us, right? And, and, and animals are like us, right? They're certainly like us. In fact, if I remember carefully, the gen Genesis, God is forming men and animals very similarly, making them from the dust. The difference is that God breathes into man and makes and forms man in his image, and he doesn't do that to any other creature. What is it that distinguishes us, that makes us more special than animals? It's his image, and that's it. It is the dignity of having that image upon us, and no other animal has that. No other creature has that. Now, whether you may think that only some people have this image, but no, the Bible says that all people have that image, male and female, red and yellow and black and white, gay and straight, transgender, racist, murderers, pedophiles, rapists, all have that image on them. And that, what, that is what makes it so diabolical when they use that body for evil and not for good. It's why we condemn human beings for their, for their sin. When the great white shark eats a tuna, we don't put him on trial for murder. He doesn't murder the tuna. He eats it. He kills it. But when man takes the life of another human being, he has offended the image of God. That's the exact command in, Gen in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy. When you take the life of another, you've taken the image of God. So in a day and time where men and women are confused about image, and in a day and time where image is still everything, it seems good to me to preach on the source of our identity, namely the triune God. I want to talk this morning about the image of God. 
That is the unity and the diversity, the threeness and the oneness of God. I want us too, as a church, to begin to think of this mystery, the mystery of God's threeness and oneness, every time we hear the word God. I don't want us to make the mistake of assuming that when we use the word God, that we're speaking only of the Father. We are not speaking only of the Father. Christian, you are not speaking only of the Father when you say God. You are speaking of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When someone says to you, we worship the same God as the Jews or the same God as the Muslims, you say, do you worship the Father as God, the Son as God, and the Spirit as God? And when they say no, say, then you and I do not worship the same God. J.I. Packer says this, the practical importance of the doctrine of the Trinity is that it requires us to pay equal attention and give equal honor to all three persons in the unity of their gracious ministry to us. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What can be said about the deity of the Father can also be said about the deity of the Son and the deity of the Spirit. As such... I want to look at four points, and in our core beliefs, we give space, due space, to four truths, four fundamental beliefs. That is, that there is one God, and that there are three persons in the one Godhead. Here is our core belief number two, God. We believe there is only one God who exists in one essence and in three persons, As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who creates, sustains, redeems, and renews everything which has been made by His decree and by the decree of His word. We believe that all essential characteristics of the attributes of divinity are equally distributed to each person of the Trinity so that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist equally and eternally as one God. We further believe that each person of the Trinity has distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. Let's look at what scripture says about this. 2 Corinthians 13:14 teaches us that the trinitarian nature of God is the very place where we find our identity. 2 Corinthians 13 through 14 says this. Paul speaking to the church leaves them with this thought. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may it be with you all. The Trinitarian nature is where we find our identity. When Paul speaks to the church at Corinth, it is to say and to bless them in a Trinitarian fashion. It is to give worthy, give worthy or worth to all three persons of the Godhead. As Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. It is the basis of where we find our identity and fellowship with God. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. 
is the very Trinitarian nature of God that gives us the basis of our new creation. When Jesus went and told his 11 disciples to go into the world, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you as a Christian accept by faith the gracious atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sin and you feel that sorrow, the weight of your sins, and accept by faith what God freely gives to us in His Son, the Bible tells us that we're to be baptized. And when we baptize, we are commanded to baptize in the name not only of the Son, but of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons of God are involved in your salvation. This is why this doctrine is so essential. Some would say the Trinity is a very hard doctrine to understand. I would say to you it is an impossible doctrine to understand. But the Bible is not asking for us to comprehend what is incomprehensible. It is asking us to apprehend what he has given to us. That is to merely take what God gives us, that God is three and God is one, and that is the basis of our new nature in Christ. Well, what do theologians say? I'm going to just read Douglas MacLeod because I think he hits the point very beautifully. But the very necessity of his being, God is triune. In other words, God is a necessary being. He cannot not exist. He must exist. He has never been and can never be except as triune. For him to be, that is God, that is eternally, that is forever and necessarily, for him to be is to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Once we accept this, it is clear that the Father owes it to the Son and to the Spirit that He is what He is, namely, Father, as much as they owe to Him and to each other that they are what they are, respectively Spirit and Son. Only then can we say that none is greater and none is lesser. Jesus is not less than the Father. He has submitted to the will of the Father, but that does not make him ontologically less. He is not less. He is not created. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Spirit is God. So what does this mean for us? The Bible reveals to us a God who is past finding out. Now the Bible is completely inspired. We're not saying that it is not. It is completely inspired. It is completely inerrant. It is completely infallible. That means God said it. It's all true and it all works. That's what it means. God said it. It's all true and it all works. Start applying the Bible to your life and see if you don't correct all of your problems. It's all true. 
It's all, it all works, and God has said it. But the Bible still reveals to us the mysteries of God. And Romans 11.33 tells us God's ways are beyond finding out. That is to say that we can't know, that, that is not to say that we can't know anything about God or that we cannot know anything true about God. It is to say that what we know about God is simply what God has chosen to reveal to us about himself. But we must never forget that what is revealed about God is the mystery of his majesty. God has revealed that his thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. It follows then that every revelation of God's nature and essence will always carry with it its own mystery and majesty. My mother used to say to me, if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll go crazy. But if you don't believe the Trinity, you'll lose your own soul. I love that. If you try to understand it, you'll go crazy. If you don't believe it, you'll lose your own soul. The Trinity is essential to our relationship with God. Therefore, we must hold unswervingly to the Bible's declaration of God's oneness and threeness. We must maintain that the Trinity is A, a mystery, B, not a contradiction, and C, necessary for the salvation of our souls. For if we have not offended God the Father by our sins, and if God the Son had not died, and if God the Holy Spirit has not regenerated all of us to believe, accept, and trust in that truth, we are above all men to be pitied, for we are completely hopeless. We must believe that God is one in essence and three in person. Well, let's talk then about the, spe the specific functions of each person of the Godhead. Number one, we believe in God the Father. What does this mean? God the Father is the one who sovereignly governs and directs all things according to his providence and goodwill. Who initiates the redemption of believers by his sovereign choice in salvation. We believe that he is eternally Father and that he has sent God the Son in whom he is well pleased to be our only propitiation sin you see if God can't become anything if God is always the same right we say that God is always the same and God never changes right isn't that what we say isn't that what scripture says God is always the same and never changes right if God is father he has been eternally father His nature necessitates that there be an eternal Son and an eternal Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit 
in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What do theologians say about God the Father? The Baptist Faith in Message 2000, which is our confession of faith, says this, God as Father reigns with providential care over His universe, His creatures, and the flow of the stream of human history according to the purposes of His grace. The essential work of God the Father is this, God the Father governs all things. As we sit here in this church house this morning, we hear sirens outside of our windows. And we know that they're running to some kind of evil. We know that someone has either died of natural causes, which would be evil. We would know that someone has committed a crime, which would be evil. We know that someone might even get into an accident, which would be evil. And what we testify as a body is that God providentially governs all things. All things. How is it that God does that? Why is it that God does that? It is not for us to know why or how God does and governs all things. It is for us to trust that when God the Father does govern all things and disposes all things to happen, it is for us to step back and say, glory be to you. For we know, God, that you are just and good and pure and holy. And in the midst of all of the world's evils, we know that there's still a holy God. And that the evil that happens, happens because he has providentially ordained it to happen. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean to maintain the knowledge of a creator God and a sustainer God? A God who is still involved in the creation that he made. It means that there is no greater attack on God today than on the assaults on his creation. The idea that nature is accidental and furthermore that man is not his image bearer but is simply the consequence or conclusion of the great cosmic accident of naturalistic biological evolution. It means we have to maintain that that is no accident and that everything that happens happens according to God and to his providence and for his glory. That that is not an accident. We must uphold the existence of God and his divine creation of the universe and his special creation of man. For if God does not exist, then the universe is not created. If the universe is not created, then the universe is without meaning. If the universe is without meaning then men are without identity and without purpose. See how quickly those corollaries follow from one another. Nietzsche was the famed philosopher, favorite philosopher of Adolf Hitler. Look at how modern thinking, which enlightenment thinking, which killed God and said we no longer need God. Look at the 20th century, which was the bloodiest century known to men. Man had come of age and he had gotten rid of the idea of a need for God. 
And it was nothing for Nazi prison camp runners to walk up and put Jew after Jew after Jew in a line, pull out their pistols, and put a bullet through one of their heads and see how many other heads they could get that bullet to go through. It was nothing for them to rip their clothes off and throw them into piles of their dead bodies and to light those bodies on fire. After all, they don't bear anyone's image. Think of the consequences of a godless society. It is dire. It is empty. It is dark. It is cold. We must maintain, therefore, the light of his existence and the providence of his creation. But we further believe that God is also Son. So we believe in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love when people say, well, don't we, what about other gods? Aren't there other, aren't there other religious teachers that, as, as if we are taking simply the teaching and not his essence and his being, and we're just simply taking the teaching of Jesus and putting it side by side to Buddha's teaching and to Muhammad's teaching and to Mary Baker Eddy's teaching, and we're putting them all together and we're saying now, they've all, and Gandhi's teaching, they've all got something to say to us. Yes, but only one is God. I'm not saying that the Buddha doesn't have a lot of good advice. I'm not saying that there aren't true things that come from other religions. But only one is God. And only one has died for your sins. And so we must maintain this truth. That we believe that God is not only Father, but God is also Son. And that these are distinct persons. Who is one person in two natures. Jesus is truly divine and truly human. Who is God and was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were made. Who was born of a virgin, crucified on the cross as a substitute for our sins and was raised bodily by the Spirit on the third day and as he ascended unto the Father where he intercedes on behalf of every believer. Colossians 2.9 says this, speaking of Jesus, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What a mystery of the incarnation. None of us can understand how it is that the whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. What does theology say or what do what does this necessarily mean for us it means as we read in our past couple wednesday nights that we as christians who have been born of the christ image are now partakers of the divine essence second peter 1 11 second sorry second peter 1 3 that we are partakers of the divine essence it means for us that Jesus is truly man and not merely man. He is truly God and truly man. And that is for our benefit. The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. The power of that phrase rocked the earth to its foundations when sinful man crucified God, the God of this world. Think for just a moment what we witnessed 2,000 years as a species. We witness the crucifixion of God. The Bible tells us that it went dark. 
that the earth began to quake and that dead men began to rise. Read Matthew. It is a spooky image of what happened. And I believe that even on that day that God held back what it really meant when he crucified his own son. The earth quaked in anger. Darkness came upon the earth. And the Bible says that bodies were raised. The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. But by his power we have been filled in him. And this means that every part of our salvation and every part of our new nature is in Christ. I spent this morning saying to someone on the phone, this person was telling me about a spiritual mentor who had hurt them, even a pastor who had hurt them. And I said to this person on the phone, don't look to your mentors in the faith to be the image of God. Look to Christ to be the image of God. If you continuously look to men, you're going to be disappointed, but look to Christ. Christ is whose image you're after. Don't be like your pastor. Don't be like John Piper. Don't be like Dwight Moody or Charles Spurgeon or your mother or your father. They're not going to judge you. Jesus will judge you. And he is going to ask you this. Did you bear my image? Did you desire to be like me? This is what this concept means to us. Colossians 2, 10 through 15 says, And you have been filled, speaking to Christians, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised and with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. It doesn't matter, believer, whether or not you are disappointed in your spiritual mentors. It doesn't matter whether or not your brother in Christ has offended you and you are justified in holding a grudge against that person. What matters is this, believer, are you conforming to the image of Christ? You dwell in him. Romans 14, 7 through 8 says this. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. Every one of us should be challenged when we read the stories of God the Son and say, make me like him. I want to be like him. I said to this person on the phone, the person said to me, I'm just, I just can't forgive this person because of the things they've done. I said, I want you to read the parable of the unmerciful servant and remember this. You owe to that person only this one thing, the very forgiveness and unworthy forgiveness that you receive from Jesus Christ himself. Every one of you and every grudge that you have with your brother and your neighbor, every time you think you have an excuse to not be holy, remember that God has forgiven you of 10,000 talents the only thing for you to do is forgive a hundred denarii. Come on. That is nothing. Be like Christ. But we also believe that God is Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from both the Father and the Son. Who calls and convicts every believer of their sin. Enabling them to positively respond to the gospel call. 
We believe that the Holy Spirit is now God's active presence among the church, empowering all believers for ministry, enabling them to overcome sin, and uniting them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's what we believe about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is also God. If the Holy Spirit is not God, then you and I cannot be regenerated and given new life. God is the one who gives life. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born of spirit, you will in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the comforter while he was here. But now Jesus ascended unto the Father and sent another comforter. And it is the Spirit of God that dwells among us today. It is the Spirit of God that regenerates us and gives us a new life to accept and believe the things of the gospel. The Bible says that the Spirit opened up Lydia's eyes so that she could receive the things that Paul taught. Acts chapter 16. But the Bible tells us that God is also spirit. Acts 5, 3 through 4, this is an interesting story. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We know the story well, but watch how this works. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Remember who Peter says they've lied to. They have lied to the Holy Spirit. While it remained unsold, says Peter, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. For Peter, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Spirit helps us to understand the word today. John 16, 13 through 15 says this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. Not only is the Holy Spirit God, but he's a person. He, he will guide you. He will give you truth. He will give you knowledge. He can be offended. He can be grieved. He is a person. He will glorify me, says Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You want to know if it's from the Holy Spirit? Does it glorify Jesus Christ? Some people say, I don't know sometimes whether or not that's from the Spirit of God. Does it glorify Jesus Christ? Then it's of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, he will glorify me and declare what is mine to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take, that is the Spirit, take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is the active presence of God today, teaching us the truth of God's word. But not only does the Spirit help us understand the word, the Spirit comforts us. Paul says in Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray For as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is 
the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit teaches us to pray. Sometimes I go before God and I, I don't have a word to say to the Lord. I don't even know how to begin to pray. I'm overwhelmed with emotion or overwhelmed with concern or even overwhelmed with joy. And the Bible says it's the Holy Spirit that intercedes on our behalf. In groanings too deep, doesn't it fit that the God of all mystery and majesty would have to equip us with someone who could give us the ability to search the mystery and majesties of God? Namely, the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit also gives us the ability to put sin to death. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The struggles that you have in your life right now are there because you haven't given them over to God yet. And I'm not saying that they're going to happen instantly, but I'm saying that every struggle you have with sin, you have to give, get, give it to God. This is the one part of our salvation where we work with God, but the only way you're going to ever overcome your struggle with sin is to get down on your knees and say, God, help me by your Spirit. It, it will be you who works in me to will it. Just to will it. Some of you might be struggling with a sin right now that you don't even will to overcome. But pray that the Spirit will help you will to overcome it. God, give me the will this morning to stop sinning. Whatever the sin may be. God, give me the will I can tell you, testify to you, if you believe this, I pray that you will. I can think of two specific sins in my life where I prayed for years that, the God, that God would help me by His Spirit to will, to want, to stop it. And I have been delivered from those sins. When I prayed it, I didn't want it. I knew it was wrong, and I knew that there was something even worse wrong, that I loved something more than God. And I still went to the Father and said, God, will in me and for me to change this attitude. And through time and patience and much, much discipline from God's Holy Spirit, I was able to overcome those sins. But not just to will, but also to act. To take that will and that desire when we have it and to say no to sin. For it is God who lives in you in the presence of the Spirit to both will and to act according to His good pleasure. To be crucified in Christ and to live now in newness of life in Him. That is the power of the Spirit in us. What does this mean, this doctrine of the Spirit? What does it mean for us? It means we must be careful not to overlook the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The most neglected member of the Trinity in the evangelical church today is the person of the Holy Spirit. 
But he is the presence of God among the church today. As Christ was the comforter during the earthly ministry, so too, yet in a different way, the Holy Spirit is the comforter for the church today. His role is to comfort and sanctify the church to make us a beautiful bride for Jesus Christ. By the power of the Spirit, we are enabled for ministry, empowered to overcome sin, and comforted in the midst of suffering and persecution. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. Each person of the divine trinity in a, mysteriously fa- in a mysterious fashion, has for us a special role in our lives. Never overlook any three. Always maintain the dignity of all three as divinely God from eternity past. Not just today, but forevermore. Let's pray. God, you are holy. You are perfect in might and majesty. You are Father. You are Son. You are Holy Spirit. We worship you as such. We worship you in truth and in the knowledge that you, God, made us in that image, the image of unity, the image of diversity. Lord God, amongst us in this church is the practical application of your divine essence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the practical application that though we are different, different in gender, different in race, different in age, different in social status, though we are diverse as a body, Lord Jesus. Your Holy Spirit can make us one as the Father and the Son are one. Let us understand and praise you in the mystery of your Trinity. We worship you, God. Amen.